Before we get into the message, I don't do this often enough, but I just would, can we thank the band for how they serve us every single weekend? Let's give them a round of applause. You know, they put, in, they put in hours and hours and hours of work every week to get ready to, to lead us in worship every weekend. And, and I know sometimes, sometimes we show up and the band plays and, and it's awesome, but we don't think about the level of dedication and commitment that they put into it. So I'm just so thankful for them and what they provide to our church as an act of worship, as an act of service to you and to God. And so um, it's awesome. And I was just thinking, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm getting nostalgic because we're at the end of a series. I'm just saying, you know, you go to times of transition and you start thinking back over your past. And, and so today we are finishing the series, Old Testament in seven weeks. This is week number seven and sort of eight. <laughs> so, because we took a break for one week in the middle of the series. So uh, yeah, but this is week number seven. And the goal of this series, for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, is to understand the timeline of the Old Testament. This would be a little confusing. If you take the Old Testament and you read it from Genesis to uh, Malachi, which is the last book, if you read from one to the other, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what's going on because the Old Testament is not organized in chronological order. In some places it is, and in some places it, is, it isn't. And the Old Testament is actually organized by style of literature. So you have the law and you have history and you have uh, poetry and you have prophecy and that's how it's organized. And so what we're doing is walking through the timeline so we can sort of get a 30,000 foot view of what God is doing in the Old Testament. You know how the world looks different when you're up in an airplane? It looks a lot different than it does when you're down on ground level. And so our goal is to get up to airplane level on the Old Testament and understand what is God doing and what is he trying to accomplish through the Old Testament. And when you see that, then the timeline makes perfect sense. So God starts, and we've created this timeline. It's um, a simple way of understanding how the... Uh, periods of time unfold in the Old Testament. Um, I don't have one up here with me, but Ben, would you mind bringing me one real quick so I can show everybody? Um, And uh, you didn't have to run, but I appreciate that. (laughs) You know, we're not in a hurry or anything, but um, it's just this timeline. It it breaks the Old Testament down into six sections. If you don't have one of these and you want to raise your hand, Ben will bring you one right now if you don't have one of these yet. You can stick it in your Bible, put it on your fridge. It's just a neat tool. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's accurate, but it's not perfect. You know, not everything isn't there, but this will give you a rough idea of what God is doing. And so while they're handing those out, just to, to kind of run it back and start from the beginning, God, first of all, creates human beings. And we have, the, we have the founders. We have Adam and Eve, and we have Noah. Each category has a few people under it. And if you can memorize the categories and you can memorize who goes under it, you can memorize the timeline of the whole Testament. It's not that difficult. Um, if you can memorize all of the words to ice, ice, baby, then you could certainly memorize this. You might just have to put it to a, to a musical backing track. But either way, uh, it walks through the timeline. So God starts off and he makes human beings, Adam and Eve. And we have the founders. Also, Noah is in this category. And what, he's done, what God is doing, he's, he's starting, right? And when he created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were supposed to honor him as God and follow him as God and, and understand that he held a position they didn't. But Satan comes and he tricks them into thinking that they can be God and that eating this fruit in the garden that God said, don't eat. If they eat this, then they can be like him. And in their desire to be like God, they break their relationship with God. And so now what God begins is he begins this process of retraining humanity in how to love him and honor him and serve him. And he does that by building a family. So he starts with, he starts with the father's. 
We have Abraham and God makes Abraham a promise. He promises him land. He promises him he'll be a blessing. And he promises him he's going to have a lot of descendants. And the land that he promised to him, if you're ever reading in the Old Testament, you see the promised land talked about. That's the land. It's the, the one he promised to Abraham. That promise came to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob. And then to one of his uh, sons, uh, Joseph. And Joseph, God is building his family through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Joseph is the reason that this whole family, this whole clan ends up in Egypt. All right, we're gonna do a whole series on Joseph here in just, just a few months. And so they end up in Egypt and they need to, God needs to deliver them to, to begin making them the nation. We call them the nation of Israel because Jacob's name, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And so he begins building this nation, but now they're in captivity in Egypt. And he needs to set them free. So God raises up deliverers. He raises up Moses. And Moses famously goes to the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? And he says, Brenda, you know it, right? Let my people go. Let my people go, right? He stands up, Charlton Heston. It's him and Moses, basically the same person. Anyway, so Moses, <laughs> Moses gets up there. And at first, the Pharaoh says, nope. But then God brings plagues. And then Pharaoh's like, yep. And he lets them go. And they go toward the promised land. Lots of amazing things happen and we don't have time for today. And they try to go into the promised land, but they don't have enough faith the first time. And so they have to wander around in the desert for 40 years. But finally, after 40 years, God lets them go in under the leadership of Joshua. So they go into this land. So you follow in the timeline? God starts creating his family, but they end up in slavery. He delivers them to go into the promise that he la- the, the land that he promised to Abraham. And um, they, go, they finally go in. And then we enter a period that we call the judges because they didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. They didn't have a principal. They didn't have any of these, you know, kind of authority figures that we have. So what God did, they had no formalized government. God raised up these sort of ad hoc grassroots leaders for them called judges. And they would come up when they were needed and God would raise them up and they would lead for a time and there would be peace on the land while they were leading, but then they would die and things would go into chaos again. And eventually, after enough time passes, the people of Israel have had enough of this. It's too much. It's too crazy. It's too, it's too uncertain. And so they finally say, we want a king. We want to be like all these other nations, and we want to have a king. You know, they represented power and stability and organization, and all. that's what they wanted. And God warned them. He said, listen, you're asking for a king, but you don't know what you're asking for. If you have a king, he's going to lord it over you and he's going to control your crops and he's going to tell your kids what to do and he's going to control your wealth and he's going to abuse his power and you don't really want that. But they said, yes, we do. And he said, fine. And they entered a period called the period of the kings. The first king is Saul and he's everything they could possibly want in a king. Tall, dark, handsome, all that. Likes long walks by the beach, okay? <laughs> enjoys, enjoys knitting and crafting and <clears throat> going on uh, artisanal food culinary excursions. Okay, so that's, that's Saul. And, uh, but Saul has some major problems and he loses the ability to lead. And the next king after him is King David. And then his son takes over King Solomon, right? Known for his wisdom, of course. And King Solomon has a son, Rehoboam, who is not as wise or as great as Solomon is. For all Solomon's vices, he was, he was pretty decent. But, um, Rehoboam raises up and the people don't like him. And so there's a, there's a civil war within the nation. And 10 of the tribes go and become the northern kingdom and two of the tribes become the southern kingdom. All right, so you enter the period of kings, you have uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the kingdom splits. And one is led by Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and then one is led by Jeroboam, which is another guy, okay? So <laughs> you've got the split kingdom. Eventually, both of them are overtaken. The northern kingdom, is, which is 10 of the tribes, 
They retain the name, the kingdom of Israel, and they are overtaken by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah, and that's two of the tribes, and they last longer than the northern kingdom does, which is, you know, a little underdog story, I suppose, but they last longer than the other, the other kingdom does, but eventually they're overtaken by Babylon. And so now both king, now there's no kingdom. So we've, we've exited the period of kings, which brings us to the period that we find ourselves in today. So they find, we're going to talk specifically about the southern kingdom, because that's where, that's where Rehoboam went. That's where the line of David and King Solomon went is into the southern kingdom. And so they find themselves in Babylonian captivity. But last week we talked about the prophets and it's sort of like a little break in the series because the prophets don't have their own period in the timeline. They're all throughout the timeline. So we kind of, we put them down at the bottom um, so you could see kind of where they fit. But before they even go into Babylonian captivity, there's this prophet named Jeremiah. Okay, and Jeremiah says this, which is funny. They're not even captivity yet. I'm gonna drop this thing. They're not even in captivity yet. And uh, Jeremiah, or, or sorry, I'm, I'm off track. It's not Jeremiah, it's Isaiah, okay? We talked about Isaiah last week. Right, this is before they're in captivity. He says this, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. All right, who says of Cyrus, this is God speaking, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Well, he's talking about the foundation of the temple being laid, which is weird because the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. Solomon's temple is still existing, right? And so he says that this guy Cyrus, this is a hundred years before it actually happens. He says this guy Cyrus is going to release you from captivity. And prophets also specifically say they're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and so the southern kingdom is overtaken by Babylon and they are taken to the city. And that's where a lot of the things that we read in the Bible, these crazy stories we read in the Bible, um, Daniel in the lion's den, that happens in bad, that's, that's when that happens. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, right? That's when that happens. And, but after they're there for 70 years, all of a sudden this guy named Cyrus rises into power. Where Isaiah talked about this 100 years before. Like, they should have seen this coming. But this, this king named Cyrus rises into power, and he decides he wants to be the self-proclaimed king of the world. So he develops a plan on how he's going to become the king of the world. The way he's going to do that is by taking everybody in Babylon who's in captivity, and he's going to send them back to their native countries, and he's going to pay to have their cities and their, their structures rebuilt. And he figures if he if he sends them back and pays to have everything rebuilt, then he is going to be the best thing to them. Like he's, he's going to be their deliverer. He's going to be their savior. They're, they're going to owe him a debt. And so his power is then going to spread all over the world. That's the goal anyway. And we know this is true, not just from the Bible. We know this from other historical data. In 1879, they found something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is uh, a round thing. Looks like a, looks like a paper towel roll, but not exactly. All right, it's a cylinder. And on it is written Cyrus's decree that all people should go back to their native lands and rebuild their temples and rebuild their cities. All right, so we know this historically. That's in the British Museum today. But of course, in that group is the nation of Israel. And so he says, you get to go home. And I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like, to be displaced from your, your native land, to be displaced from your home forcibly for 70 years. And then one day, 
It's like, it's, like, it's like being sent to prison and being in prison for 70 years and then one day you get parole. And they say you can go home. And so you're, you know, can you imagine all of the different thoughts and feelings that you would have? Like, what's it gonna be like? And what are we gonna do? And I have to adjust to, to life in a whole new place. I mean, one of, Cyrus, or one of uh, Babylon's techniques was to Babylonize you when you got there, was to try and kill your old culture. So they're like, well, we have to kind of redevelop this culture and figure this whole thing out again. But they get to go back. And about 40,000 of them do go back to Jerusalem. And they get to take, um, when, they, when they left, um, the Babylon took not only them, but they took all the articles out of the temple, all the things that were in their place of worship before they destroyed it, okay? It was destroyed before they went into exile. They got to take the articles of the temple back, but they had nowhere to put them. <laughs> it's, like, it's like getting kicked out of your parents' house and you've got all your stuff, but you've got nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, they got, they got booted out of Babylon and they had all of the stuff, but they had no temple, and so they knew that was what they needed to do first. They needed to rebuild the temple. And so there are two leaders that rise up. Jeshua, he's the white collar guy. He's the priest. He was the one who was over the groups of people that were managing the work. Okay? And then Zerubbabel, which is one of the coolest names in the entire Bible, by the way. It's fun to see. It just kind of rolls off the lips. And I, yet I've never met anyone today named Zerubbabel. As cool as that name is, I was trying to think of what the nicknames might be. Babel, Bebel, Bell, maybe that's not, a, I mean, that seems like it's a dude's name. So maybe Bell's not the way to go, but Z or something, you know, but um, Zerubbabel, he's the blue collar guy. So he's got people there and he's, he's really managing the workers and uh, he's, he gets, he gets put out at the forefront of the two, but um, Jeshua and Zerubbabel go back to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And what I want to do is I want to read about that today. I want to, I want to see how that happens and the process they go through. And I also want you to be thinking, not only so we understand historically and what God's doing with the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple and to reestablish their worship of him and to reestablish them as, as his people. But I want you to think about yourself too as we're reading this, because God will take us through seasons where things are broken, where things have been destroyed, where things have been leveled to the ground in our life. And he wants to take us through a process of rebuilding those and reestablishing them. It could be a relationship. It could be a career. It could be your goals and dreams. It could be your character. It could be a lot of different things. And I want you to think about what that might be for you, what God may be rebuilding in your life as we look at what he rebuilds for the nation of Israel. All right, so we're gonna go to the book of Ezra. Ezra. Um, and to be clear, Ezra's not actually there yet. So he writes all of this down. He comes in later, but he's not a key player in the building of the temple itself. He, he doesn't come into later. He's a priest who's brought in at the end to teach them. All right, so we're going to start in Ezra chapter three. They've all gone back. You know, chapters one and two really talk about Cyrus and decree and everybody heading back towards Jerusalem. It's in um, chapter three where they, they actually get to work. Uh, chapter three, verse three says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now you gotta imagine, as they're building this thing, they've come back to Jerusalem, but the walls are gone because they were knocked down by Babylon and the temple's gone. And as they go back, the first thing they rebuild is the temple, not the walls. So as they're rebuilding, they, at least they have their priorities straight, but of course, as they do it, they're afraid of that other people may come in and attack them as they're doing this work. So uh, the fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. 
So the first thing they do before they provide any protection is they make offerings to God, even in the midst of their fear. Then in verse 6, it says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. I think that just drives home again. They started by offering to God. They started by worshiping God before they ever even started any of the work. And then in verse 8, it says, Now in the second year... So they've been there at least one year. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shealtiel, forgive me on these, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen. So they didn't start on the foundation of the temple until they had already been there for a year. They waited and they worshiped as they waited. But then they started, they laid the foundation Um, The priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. All right, that was Jeshua's job, was to supervise the work. Like I said, blue collar, white hard hat, hands off management, right? Uh, Then in verse 10, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And I love this. They're not done yet. They're just starting. But after they've started, they party. All right? There's something, we're going to learn something there with that. So take, take note of that. And I love they're doing a responsive singing. So, so he would sing something to them and then they would sing it back. It's the way it worked. It reminded me, I was telling the team, um, if you serve on a team here at Carolina Family Church on a, on a Sunday, so it's one of our hospitality teams of Carolina kids or in the band or production or wherever you may serve on Sunday. Uh, we all huddle up at about 9.30 um, over in the media center because it's air conditioned. So we meet over there and we do a circle and we talk a little bit and everything. But then we get into the middle and we do this responsive thing, all right? We, call it, we don't know what to call it. Sometimes we call it a chant, but that feels weird. It feels a little cultish, and it's not, you know? But we, we get to the middle, and we all put our hands in, and we say, this is family. And everyone says, this is family. We are the sons and daughters of God. All right, thanks, Ryan. You got it, man. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will love our neighbor today. All right, and then we cheer something, whatever it is for the weekend. This weekend, and anyway, it's, it's, something, it's something different every single week. But, um, but we just, we do that responsively. And I just, I told the team this morning, I was like, we're doing the same thing they did, you know, except we're not singing. Maybe we'll sing that one day. But, but that's what they did. They had a party and they worshiped and they celebrated each step along the way. But this craziest thing happens, this really bittersweet moment, because it sounds all good, but look at what happens in, in verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that means Solomon's temple, they'd seen Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Why did they do that? Why did the prophet Haggai actually tells us why they did it? Right, he, was a, he was one of the prophets at the time here. The reason they did it was because they looked, they knew what had been Solomon's temple and they looked at what was being built and what was being built paled in comparison to what was. 
And so they wept. They weren't tears of joy. They were tears of sorrow because they thought, what is this thing we're building? It's not nearly as good as what we started with. It's an amazing dynamic. And then it says, so that, verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. It all just meshed up into one. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. It's like this bittersweet symphony. <laughs> Come on, music fans. You know, it's, a, it's this bittersweet symphony. It's this, it's this, their voices are all raising up together and some are really excited about what's being rebuilt and some are sad about what's being rebuilt because they don't think it's as good as where it started. Take note of that. And then in uh, chapter four, Verse one, now they're, they're building and they're making progress, but anytime you're making progress, there's gonna be opposition, right? So uh, chapter four, verses one through five. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, well, let us, these are their adversaries. It's already told us, right? And they said, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us building a house to our God. But we will alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us to do. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what they tried first, they had adversaries. They're trying to rebuild something. They're trying to restart something. But the people that were already there don't want them to do that. And so they decide to infiltrate, perform a little espionage, a little corporate espionage on the nation of Israel. And they're going to come in and say, hey, we're your friends. We'll help you out. And their plan, of course, is to get in and cause dissension and to try to, to stop the work of building the temple. But Zerubbabel and Joshua would say, no, no, we know what this is. No, you guys have no part in what's going on here. And so when they know that they can't attack them from the inside, then they begin attacking them from the outside. That's plan B. They actually, Cyrus goes out of power and a king uh, of Persia comes in place named Artaxerxes, okay, Artaxerxes. And they send a letter to Artaxerxes and they say, hey, I don't know if you've heard about these people that are rebuilding over here in Jerusalem, but if you check the historical records, you'll find out they're troublemakers, okay? They're only, gonna, they're only gonna cause problems for you and you need to shut them down. And Artaxerxes goes and he checks the records and he says, that's true. And then he, he sends a command for the work to stop in Jerusalem and they have to stop. The money stops flowing, the workers stop flowing, they have to, they have to quit. And so they're just sitting and waiting because these, these people outside have ruined their plans. And so they're sitting and waiting and waiting. Meantime, the, the two prophets at the time are Haggai and Zephaniah. They're the two big prophets in Judah at the time. And they're saying, listen, we got to get back to work. We got to get, God, God wants you to get back to work. You need to get back to work. You need to get back to work. So eventually, Artaxerxes falls out of power. You'll notice this happens a lot. And a guy named Darius comes in. And when Darius comes in, those in Jerusalem think, we get, here's our chance. So they send a letter to, to Darius and they say, hey, you know, we, we're here working on the temple. If you look back, there was a guy named Cyrus who said that we could do it. Conveniently leaving out the facts that, by the way, that Artaxerxes had told them they had to stop. 
They just said, hey, if you look back at the records, you're going to see, you find that Cyrus cylinder. You'll see. He said it was okay for us to be here and work. And Darius says, oh, you know what? You're right. You guys can start working again. <laughs> so it's like, it feels a little bit like when kids pit parents against each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my kids come to me and they're like, dad, can I have a Klondike bar? Because they love Klondike bars. Who doesn't? I love it. He said, can I have a Klondike bar? I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You can have a Klondike bar. It's fantastic. They go and they go out. You got to eat it outside, though. Messy. So they go outside and they eat their Klondike bars. And then Jess comes in and she's like, did they have a Klondike bar? (laughs) Yes. I just told them they cannot have a Klondike. Oh, man. You know, it feels a little bit about like what's going on here. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Darius says, yes, return to the work. And so they return to the work of uh, building the, the, yeah, the temple. All right, let's go to uh, Ezra chapter 6. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, uh, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, interestingly enough, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And then in verse 16, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of those, the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And after they finish, then Darius actually sends Ezra to them. And Ezra is the the one who teaches them and explains to them how they're supposed to follow God now that the temple is rebuilt, how they're supposed to worship and what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. But they go through this whole process of rebuilding. It's really a process. And God does this with the nation of Israel over and over and over again. It's a process of re-discipling, retraining, re-preparing, reminding them of who they are. And so now he's brought them back into Jerusalem and he's prepared. He's prepared for what's going to be next in history. We see the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and then we see the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah. And then we don't have much for about 400 years. We don't have much written for about 400 years. God has finished his preparation in that season and he's ready for the promised king to come, for the Messiah to come. He's walked him through this whole journey. He's walked him through this whole journey. He's rebuilt the temple. He's rebuilt the walls. They're back home. And then he brings the Savior. And I think about the process that he took them through, the promises that he has for them. And I think that God takes us regularly through processes of rebuilding like that ourselves, of retraining, of rediscipling, of restoring something that was lost. And so I want to talk about some of those lessons that we can learn here. So when God rebuilds something in your life, and that could be many different things for many of us in the room. So when God rebuilds something in your life, first, his timing is worth waiting for. His timing is worth waiting for. Now, they had to wait a lot. You think about it. They had to wait to go back. There were 70 years in, in Babylon. They had to wait to go back. They had to wait at least a year to get started on the, on the foundation. 
They had to wait more years until they, they took more steps. They had to wait when Artaxerxes said stop. And they just had to sit and wait. And they had to wait for it to be finally finished. God takes us through periods of waiting and that doesn't really drive with us that much because we like things to happen now. We feel like, well, God wants to rebuild my marriage. It should happen now. <laughs> if God wants to rebuild my career, it needs to happen soon. If God wants to rebuild my dreams, that needs to happen quickly. If God's going to rebuild my character, it needs to happen immediately. If God's going to rebuild my finances, I need a check. You know, I want it to happen right away. And God doesn't work that way. And it's good that he doesn't work that way because God understands things we don't understand. He knows the timeline better than we know the timeline and his timing is perfect. It was Jeremiah that said, uh, Jeremiah 29, for thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah, this is when God said to the nation of Israel, you're gonna be in Babylon for 70 years, but you're coming back. Okay, it was a promise, but they had to wait. And so I guess I just want to ask you, as you're thinking about the thing in your life that you feel God wants to rebuild, are you willing to wait? Are you willing to wait for it? Because if you let it come in God's timing, it will be the right timing. And if you push the timing, it will be the wrong timing. So are you willing to wait? That's the first thing is time, timing is worth waiting for. Second, when God rebuilds something in your life, you may have to do it scared. You may have to do it scared. You think about what they, you know, I mean, they, they went there and they got started and they were afraid of all the people, right? They were concerned about what was going to happen. But what did they do? What was their response to the chaos that they anticipated around them? They worshiped, right? They offered sacrifices. They went to God and said, God, we trust you. God, we believe in you. You're our protection. You're our deliverer. You're, our, you're everything to us. And so we're worshiping you while we're waiting, even though we're scared. We're worshiping you even though we're scared. Uh, let me keep reading. Jeremiah 29, Ted said, you know, 70 years and then you're going to head back. And then we get to Jeremiah 29, 11, which is some people's favorite verse in the world. Um, it's on a lot of your walls at home. <laughs> But it's misunderstood by many, many people. Because when God speaks in Jeremiah 29 11, he's speaking to the nation of Israel right after he's told them, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, but then you're going to come home. And he says this, Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope or a future and a hope. That's a promise to Israel. All right. Now we can take that principle and apply it to our life and say, yes, God loves us and God has a plan for us and God has a future for us and yes, we have hope in Christ. But we need to understand this verse in context first, that first God is saying this to Israel. And then he says this, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me and when you seek me with all of your heart. So he's a promise to them. He said, I know you're gonna be in captivity, but you're gonna go home. And when you go home, you're going to worship me and you're going to honor me and I'm going to take care of you because I have plans for you. That's the confidence that, that allowed them to do it scared. All right? And it's the same kind of confidence that allows us to do things scared. When we don't know how it's going to turn out, when we don't know what's going to happen in the future, we rest on knowing that God sent his son for us, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin on the cross, to rise again. He's given us the spirit as a seal, to, as a promise, to show us he's got us and we don't need to be afraid. And that he has a future for us and he has hope for us and we can pursue that even if we have to do it scared. Okay? 
So when God rebuilds something in your life, you may have to do it scared. Third, when God rebuilds something in your life, haters will try to hold you down. And they may not come to you looking like haters, by the way. They're going to come to you first looking like a friend. But there are people in our life who benefit from our failure, even though they may pretend to be our friend. Because if we're down on the level they're down on, then they feel better about where they are. And they don't want us to succeed and they don't want us to change and they don't want us to make progress forward because if we make progress forward, it leaves them behind with the awareness of where they are. Misery loves company, right? So haters are going to try to hold you down, sometimes overtly and sometimes secretly. And when those things come, you have to be able to recognize them as they are and say, no, 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 no. God is rebuilding something in my life and I will not let you stop that. You have no part in what God is doing in my life right now. Just like they said, you have no part in the rebuilding of this temple because they knew they were opponents. Don't worry, God's gonna take care of them. God made this promise um, through the prophet Zechariah about the, about the adversaries of Judah. He said, the oracle of the word of the, this is Zechariah 9, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is, is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. Zechariah, and then he, he says some really nasty stuff about what's gonna happen to them. So basically saying, don't worry. God knows your opponents are out here. He's got his eye on you. He's got his hand on you. Don't have to worry. Just keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. And that's what, in that period when they were waiting, under Artaxerxes, that's what Haggai and Zephaniah kept saying. Come on, we gotta, we gotta keep moving. We gotta keep, don't be afraid. Don't worry, don't worry. We gotta keep moving. We gotta keep moving. We gotta keep moving. You need people in your life like that, all right, who are encouraging you to that, not the other. So when God is rebuilding something in your life, number four, it won't be the same as it used to be. I think this is really important. It won't be the same as it used to be. Uh, Haggai, I told you, I told you he, he kind of gave us a window into what was happening with the people that were crying when the foundation of the temple was laid. And he says this, Haggai um, 2, 2 through 5. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So these are the old men that were talked about in Ezra, right? Who, were, who had seen Solomon's temple. Who's left among you who's seen this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? He said, I know that you're looking at this and you think that it's, it's, it pales in comparison to what was. He says this, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work! For I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So Haggai says to him, I know you're disappointed at how this is turning out, but you gotta hang in there because God is in control of this thing. And I know if you're looking at your marriage and it's a wreck and maybe you're separated or whatever and you're saying, we gotta rebuild this thing, the, the tendency is to say, we just need to get back to what we used to do. We just need to get back to the old days. We just need to restore things to the way they were. Remember when we were, you remember year two and how amazing that was? We need to get back to that. No, 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 no. 
Because when God rebuilds your marriage, it will not be the same as it was at the first. And that's a good thing because if it's the same as it was at the first, you're just going to end up where you are now. It has to be different. It has to be founded on a different foundation. It has to be of different proportions. It has to look different and feel different. And the same thing is true when he's rebuilding a career or he's rebuilding any relationship or he's rebuilding your character or whatever it might be that he's doing in your life. It is not going to be the same as when you started. And be careful too about comparing a foundation to a finish. So they're comparing the foundation of a temple to the finish of Solomon's temple. Be very careful about that. Appreciate it along the way. And by the way, the first temple, Solomon's temple, stood for 450 years. This second temple stands for 600 years. So it, even, it lasted even longer. And I might also point out that the temple that they're rebuilding here is the temple where Jesus is going to walk. And I would say that carries a, a bit more weight than all of the gold and all of the columns and all of the rooms that you could put into a structure. All right, so it won't be the same as it used to be, but that's a good thing. It needs to change. And then the fifth thing, the last thing. When God is rebuilding something in your life, every little win should spark a celebration. Every little win should spark a celebration. Zechariah said this, Zechariah 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the, la- the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. You remember, remember they partied when they laid the foundation first time? All right. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. All right, so if they didn't understand it then, they will understand it later. The little things matter. And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So he's saying you're going to rejoice while he's doing the work. And you need to celebrate along the way. And if God is rebuilding something in your life, don't wait for it to be complete to have a party. Celebrate every single step as you go. All right? Celebrate. You need, you know, you need to celebrate your restored anniversary together, not just your wedding anniversary. You need to celebrate one day clean, okay? Celebrate one week sober, celebrate every single step along the way. Celebrate the graduation. Celebrate the birthday. Celebrate the relationship. Celebrate every single little thing that you can so that as you go through the journey, you're worshiping God. Because I'll tell you, any of those things in your life, if God begins rebuilding them, they will never be complete. You know that, right? He's always in the process of building. So if we're always waiting for the final result, we'll never, we'll never celebrate. We'll never have joy. We'll be like the old men who weep and look at the, the foundation and say, well, it's not done yet. It's not what it used to be. And what I think what, what, Hag, what Zechariah and Haggai are both trying to point out to these guys is, hey, you, should, you shouldn't be crying over this. God is doing something powerful and he's doing something amazing and he's doing something new and something fresh in you. And so you need to celebrate that and enjoy it as he does. For some of you, the rebuilding that God wants to do He wants to rebuild his relationship with you. It's been broken. The walls, the temple have been broken down by your sin. Your sin has separated you from God. You've never turned to him in faith. And today, he wants to begin a rebuilding process in your life. And it begins with your faith in Jesus Christ. That you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin and that he rose again. 
And when you do that, when you believe that, God sends you his spirit to give you power and direction. And he leads you on a journey of building you into the person that he's designed to you, transforming the way that you think and the way that you act and what you believe and changing your character and changing all of this and transforming you into who he's designed you to be. Some of you need to make that decision for the first time today to accept Jesus Christ as your savior, to build your relationship with him. Some of you made the decision to follow Christ a long time ago, but you've strayed away from that. You've made decisions that have taken stones out of the wall and knocked things down, and you know that needs to be rebuilt in your life. And I want you to know, I want you to know that God has a promise for you. And that promise is that if you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, your sins are forgiven. And that when you call on him and when you ask him for help, he is there with you. And he'll help you if you have to do it scared. And he'll show you what the timing is supposed to be. And he'll help you know who your opponents are and to fight against them. Okay? He's going to walk you through all of these things. And today, the decision maybe you need to make is, God, I want to begin rebuilding my relationship with you today. And I'm going to trust you to walk me through that process exactly as it needs to go. All right? Let's go to God in prayer right now. Let's ask him to, to move in these decisions and to, to, to lead us. God, I come to you and um, I ask you, I ask you, first of all, knowing how much you love us and knowing how you've saved us and knowing uh, your great wisdom and your great power, I, I want to ask for clarity right now. Just, I want to ask for focus for all of us in the room, that you would help us to see what's broken. And before we know what to rebuild, God, we have to see what's broken. And sometimes you have to show us that because we can't see it ourselves. Maybe, it's, um, maybe it is a relationship. We've talked a lot about that today, God. Maybe for some of us in the room, there's a broken relationship that you want to restore, that you want to repair, that you want to rebuild. Maybe it's uh, the purpose of our life. Maybe our focus and our goals and our dreams has been shattered. Maybe that's been completely destroyed. And, and you want to rebuild that. You want to, you want to change what we're looking forward to. You want to change what we're chasing after. You want to reorient our entire life right now. Maybe it's, maybe it's our relationship with you. Maybe that's broken. For some, it may be the decision right now to accept you as their savior for the first time and start that relationship. For some, maybe it's even resting in the knowledge that we're forgiven our sins. We know we're not close with you. We know we're not following you. We know we're not in fellowship with you. And so we can see that broken relationship with you. And I ask God, whatever that is, that you would give us clarity on what it is for us as an individual. You've given me clarity and I pray you do that for each person here. And that you would give us confidence right now in your plan to rebuild it that you would give us confidence in your timing, that you, would, that you would give us patience, that you would help us to see opposition as it's coming and see it for what it is because we, we need you to open our eyes. There are people around us who are influencing us poorly and we, we think they're our friends and they're not and we need to be able to shut that off. I pray, God, that you would help us to, to see what this new thing is that you're creating and understanding how it's different from what you've created before. And that as we go through these 
decisions you would help us to celebrate each, every victory as it comes along the way. I pray specifically, God, for those who want to put their faith in you for the first time today, that they just believe in your son Jesus and his death and resurrection, put their faith in you. And then, God, you begin building them. Jesus, you're, you're the one who gives us hope. You know, we read Jeremiah 29, 11, this promise to Israel that, that you're, you have a hope and a future for them and they can have confidence. And for us, our hope and confidence comes from Christ. God, it comes from your son, knowing that he will return and that he will establish his kingdom here and that we get to be a part of that. And so we ask you, God, right now that, that all of this rebuilding that you're doing in our life would center on the power and the promise of Jesus Christ. Not in our human strength, not in our own power, not in, not in our ability, not in any book we read or any advice we get, but that our hope and our confidence comes from your son, Jesus Christ. And we will thank you for it. It's in your name we pray, amen.